Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. It's certainly even better to be with you and uh, for me to come and uh, bear the word of God before you. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we continue to address uh, the fifth chapter here in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we are in that second half of this letter where Paul is exhorting the believers to live according to the orthodox doctrine of the church, that orthodox doctrine that he laid down in those first three chapters, that he would encourage them to bear the fruit of right thinking. And he does this initially with general precepts for all Christians before he moves to more specific life situations, as we will see later on in chapter 5 and into chapter 6. But here in the middle of chapter 5, Paul returns to the metaphor of walking and the Christian life. As I've made comment before, we see that his intentionality of using this metaphor of walking in the Christian life bears in our minds that it is to be of ordinary caliber, that the Christian life is, though uh, supernatural in its origin, continues on in an ordinary fashion as the Spirit now fills us to live out our faith to walk according to the ways of God, to obey His law, to love Him and love others ordinarily. And although we love extraordinary moves of God, cataclysmic actions, we must find that Paul's exhortation here is for us this morning is to walk. Walk in a manner worthy. Walk in love. Walk according to Christ. And so, as we look at that this morning, we're going to see how the Lord then works through this extraordinary, supernatural filling of the Spirit to live out in our lives in ordinary worship. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to go ahead and begin in verse 15. I'll read through verse 21. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help now. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask your help this morning as we come before your word, as we who are in need of your special revelation, Lord, And so we are thankful that you have provided it in your written word. We ask now that you would bridle the tongue of your servant to speak your truth so that your people may be encouraged, that they may be enlivened by your spirit to not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, 
<clears throat> excuse me, the last time we saw how the first uh, few verses of our passage encouraged us to be careful, to be wise, to be knowledgeable, and finally to be filled. And so the rest of really on into chapter 6 in verse 10, we find that Paul gives an excursus on being filled with the Spirit. What does that look like in the specific aspects of the Christian life, in the walk and the Christian walk? Before us this morning, we, we find that this uh, being filled by the Spirit affects how we interact with one another and what we do in worship. And we learned something about the filling of the Spirit in the beginning of uh, our passage this morning by way of its original language. This word is in the passive voice. So it is implied that it is a work upon us. We are the patient and we are not the agent as in first causality, so to speak. Not that we don't employ our strength and our own effort and our own will, but it was first the work of the Spirit upon us, and then it is uh, the effect. We live according to the effect of that. The other aspect of this word, to be filled with the Spirit, is in the continuous tense, the present continuous tense. That is, it is to be attended by the believer. It is something that though the Spirit of God comes and indwells us at, at the moment of union with Christ, we find that it is to be attended by the believer. It is something that the Spirit of God enlivens us to then utilize our will and our affections, to utilize our intellect, as we will see, to utilize our instruments to give praise and give thanksgiving to God. And then in 19 through 21, we see that this being filled by the Spirit is attended by four participles that are the fruits of being filled by the Spirit. The four participles are speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks, and subjecting, being in subjection to one another. This morning, we will address just speaking to one another and singing. And so as we look at these uh, participles, we recognize that the first two employ our uh, relation to one another and then our relation together to God in very specific fashion the speaking and singing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, because as we see in Ephesians 5, Paul here in introducing them are bringing up this speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord is not a new concept that he's now, it's not a new church growth concept that Paul is employing in the Ephesian church. It's not something that he thinks, oh, this will be a good idea for you guys to do when you get together. This is the Spirit of God working through Paul, bringing about the growth of the church or the building of the church. This is the Spirit of Christ, the ascended Christ, working through his apostle to build the church in the way that he has fashioned it. 
and we can look back in the nascent church, in the infant church, and see how it already had begun there. So in, a few, in Acts chapter 2, it's interesting that you may come across people who are just trying to get back to Acts chapter 2. Their desire is that, that you know what, if, if the, the problem with the church today is that it just doesn't reflect Acts chapter 2. And in some ways, in the general, broader, evangelical world, I agree with them. But I don't agree with their, the implications of what they're saying in that there's some sort of um, simplicity to Acts chapter 2 that, that just gets complicated as the church moves on in history. Now, what we see in Acts chapter 2, and we'll read, begin, all beginning reading in verse 37, is what we read there is in seed form or in bud form, what comes into full flower as Paul then goes into his apostolic ministry. Here, Peter has given his Pentecost sermon. He has, uh, it has pierced the hearts of the believers. And we read this in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were gathered and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We find in the Pentecost sermon that, that there were many languages present or many nationalities or ethnicities present by which then they assumably stuck around for this uh, time of, of teaching and discipleship by, at the hands or the work of the apostles. But then they would eventually return to their homes and we find they went and they spread the gospel there and, and they began to see people converted. And so these churches are, started forming, some uh, more organized than others. For we find that Paul goes out and establishes elders where these congregations began to uprise. And then later on, he sends out Timothy to strengthen elders even them coming back and visiting with Paul as we read in Acts chapter 20. 
in the, in the great uh, passage we have there of the, his intimate connection with the elders there. But it, it's all here. It's all contained here. It's, it, it doesn't come as an unfolding of new idea after new idea after new idea. The idea is they're looking for the tracks that had been laid. They're looking for the path that had, that had already been revealed to them through the teaching of, the, of Christ through the apostles. And we find that Peter's uh, sermon there leads to means of grace and further teaching and this idea of breaking bread and praising God. The first we see is the, is the immediate presence of the ordinary means of grace where we find the baptizing of believers. We actually see that, that, Paul, that Peter, with many other words, he solemnly testified and he kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation so then, in verse 41, those who had received his word were baptized. Those who had continued on in faith were baptized. Not that they uh, uh, achieved baptism by merit, but that they heard from Peter, heard from the apostles. They saw that they lived in a perverse generation. They expressed repentance and faith, and so they were baptized. We also see that there is a breaking of bread. They were devoted to themselves, to the apostles' teaching, and the breaking of bread in verse 42, and to prayer, word, sacrament, and prayer. This hasn't, this can and sadly has changed in the general church through the ages. But to those that have sought to remain true to God's word and how he has prescribed to be worshipped, you will walk into a church and find word, sacrament, and prayer. These ordinary means of grace, these things ordained by Christ from the very beginning to grow his people into as what Paul is saying, building them up into a new temple, into a dwelling place of the Spirit, ultimately into a new humanity, and to rejoice with Christ in the age to come. Not only do we see the presence, the immediate presence of the ordinary means of grace, we see that they continued on in the temple. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. This time of Pentecost was a time of feasting. It was a time of, uh, of ordered celebration and ordered times of worship or uh, taking place there at the temple. So day by day, even though they had received Christ with one mind, they went back into the temple. It's something of curiosity there, though we find other curiosities of Paul offering sacrifices during this time. And we find great help in the book of Hebrews where it says that that time will have eventually come to an end for it was obsolete at the resurrection of Christ. When the final lamb was slain and resurrected, the final sacrifice for, uh, was, was given the 
all the temple sacrifices were obsolete, though they had not been done away with. And so it shouldn't be too surprising that we have these early Christians day by day continuing with one mind in the temple. But what was useful to them in the temple? It may be something that we don't think about in our day and age because even in the advancements we've had in the last 25 years, we've been able to carry not just one version of the Bible in our pockets, but all versions of the Bible in our pockets. And even prior to the advent of the cell phone. Uh, Thankful to the Gutenberg Press, which eventually led to further development. And now we have not just one Bible in every house, but a whole host of Bibles in every house. But here in the early church, they had the teaching of the apostles in person. And certainly there's maybe, maybe some implication that there was some recording of it and certainly there was already the uh, supernatural intending of the history of the life death and resurrection of christ in the gospels but then they also had the access to the old testament scriptures which was exclusive to the temple that was where they had access to the scriptures and they continued on day by day in the temple not to uh go back to their old forms, but to experience anew the reading and teaching of God's word. They were able to come to this time with new eyes and new ears to hear, new eyes to see and new ears to hear more of their Savior. And so, as we see also that there was a praising God that was taking place. There is a corporate praising of God. And they certainly would have at that time taken up the Psalms on their voices that they had memorized as children and then and expressed into their adulthood. And now here they would take it upon their lips corporately to praise God in a new way for all the promises that God had promised in the old covenant had found their yes and their amen in Christ. And so they could sing with new voices these psalms. And so we see in this in the earliest church this outbreaking of the spirit at Pentecost and the conversion of all these thousands of people. We find the bud of what we do this morning. What we do week in and week week out on the Lord's day. And so as we read Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, we don't read Paul and say what a novel idea to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What a novel idea to speak to one another. And as we'll look at the companion text, to teach and admonish one another. No, we would look at it and go, what a wonderful addition or wonderful continuity between that and the earliest Christians. And even on as we have some continuity to Jewish worship in the Old, script, in the Old Testament. And so their first uh, imploring, their first fruit, the first fruit of being filled with the Spirit is how we speak to one another. He says in verse, there in verse uh, 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a, there's a language, there is a... Um, 
There's an ethos of language in the Christian church among believers. Paul gives uh, greater explanation to this. The Spirit through Paul gives greater explanation to this in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. We talked about being filled with the Spirit here in Colossians. says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. For the word of Christ is the word of the Spirit, the Spirit of God being one with the Son and the Father. And so let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This idea that we are to speak to one another is the reality of our Christian profession is most tested in how we treat one another, how we relate to other Christians. Because you can imagine, even in that early church, you had, other, you had different people types coming together to worship God, and everybody who was there could watch and look at them. And we know that there were people there that were in the church or hearing about the church and curious about the church, yet not a part of it, because in the later uh, expression of the church, they were accusing them of being um, cannibalistic and that they thought they were eating flesh and drinking blood. So there was a watching world and they were watching how these Christians interact with one another. And it's most tested by the way we treat and relate to one another being filled with the Spirit. For the New Testament, this is a truth of the greatest importance. John writes in his first letter, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? One commentator made an observation. He says, you would think that Paul, in speaking of being filled with the Spirit and, and in some ways listing out these participles, would have began with the giving of thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ or something about singing and making melody in our hearts towards God. But Paul begins with speaking to one another. Paul begins with the fruit of the Spirit as an expression to how we treat and speak to one another. And certainly that relates to how we come and interact together on the Lord's Day. And especially as it relates to some of these things, as we will see, relating to the music ministry of the church how much disagreement there is in the music ministry of a church, what songs you sing, how you sing them, what instruments you employ or not employ, how you print your music, is it projected, how, all these things, I've heard all sorts of comments related to this, thankfully not from you, but in other church contexts I've been in. And we're speaking to one another in this way. And certainly the implication is we're speaking about one another in this way. Ian Hamilton says Christian worship that flows from a spirit-filled life is never self-centered and certainly is not self-preoccupied. It is worship that is marked by the family spirit of mutual encouragement, 
We come before God not as a collection of disparate individuals. We love our independence from the British monarchy. We celebrate it every year on the 4th of July. We love our, uh, the statement of our independence and the declaration of independence. We have no king. We proclaim it proudly. But when we come into the church, it is not the same. For we do have a king. We lay aside our individualism. We lay aside that part of American government individualism for a corporate reality. We come before God not as a collection of disparate individuals, though we come with our unique individuality. You don't lose your personality when you walk through the door. You don't lose the the things that make you who you are. We come to worship as the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that Paul employing this language to the Christian believers in Ephesus would have hearkened to the ones who were familiar with the Old Testament and certainly probably being taught according or with the Old Testament throughout the other week's of, of the year or however this letter found them, this idea of body and temple, this idea of a new man and a new temple would have, could have been on their mind as it relates to the Old Testament so that they would see that though there were individual markers within the temple and the individual stones you could make out or they could have imagined have been made out and the, and the individual arc, artwork relating to it that adorned it. Each individual part was unfit if it wasn't fitted together. So this language of temple and body would have impressed upon them the reality that they are a new people. They are a chosen race, as Peter says. A people set apart for God's own purpose. And so likewise, we should speak to one another in such a way. We'll be exhorted as husbands to treat our wives as our own bodies. There is some correlation there that we should treat each other or speak to each other as we would speak to ourselves. We know that second greatest commandment that we would do unto others as we would do unto ourselves. We would love each other as we love ourselves. So should we speak to one another. And that isn't to say that if you are some sort of uh, ruffian or maybe If I'm speaking to myself, you're some sort of cold, emotionless robot who lacks affection at every turn, that that you just give people what you're ready to receive. I don't need it, so they don't need it. Now, we give unto others as they need it because we want people to treat us the same way, and certainly we see Christ doing the same. And so we like our head, should treat and speak to one another in such a way. This has implications to our singing. 
Because certainly if we're lifting up our voices in song, there is speaking involved. And so as we look at our singing, we can look at it in two different ways. We look at it outwardly and we can look at it inwardly. Because we're supposed to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. It's recognized that there are a different understanding of this trio of words throughout church history. Some seeing them as different types of songs throughout scripture. Others recognizing that songs made in circumspect reflection of scripture may be made useful in the church in similarity to the sermon. But the one thing that must not be forgotten here, though uh, we here uh, choose uh, to use the second understanding, and we choose to employ the great hymn writers of the past, and we, we know that they are valuable because they've remained with the church for many, many years. We choose to scrutinize the, the songs that we sing here in our church and we try to employ the new quality songs that come into play in our current contemporary age. But one thing we must not forget, and I know you've been supported of, of this and I'm thankful, but we must not forget that the use of psalms, the use of God's word is requisite. It is, it is a requirement to sing the psalms. You should expect to sing the psalms in the worship service of God. It may be circumstantial as to how often and how many, but we should sing the psalms. This idea of singing the psalms as we recognize that the psalms are, we recognize the use of music, the use of lyrical music in the life of the church as a multifaceted use. We see in, in James where in chapter 4 he's speaking about trial and, he sa- and he's saying, but keep on rejoicing. Now there is an individual application there that in your heart, in your private worship of the Lord, in the, fa- in the family worship you employ, that you can rejoice in the trials that you experience. But there's a corporate reality to that, that we would keep on rejoicing corporately, that we would sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in time of trial because they call us out of our circumstances to truths that are above us. So that we can look past our trials, our present situation, and think of things beyond this age. Think of truths greater than our trials. We see this employed in Scripture in the book of Acts. We know well of the, of the trials of Paul and Silas who are thrown into jail. And we find them in jail, not murmuring in their hearts, but singing psalms. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the scriptures had recorded what psalms they were singing? But they took the psalms. They read them as their situation and they sang them accordingly. And they sang them in the most dire situations. 
for most people that entered those jails never left with their lives. And so it refreshed, it was meant to refresh them. And I know in my own life, the use of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs come at a timely, uh, in, a, in a timely fashion in my own life. Not in just the extraordinary trials that we've experienced, but in the day-to-day commute to work. Where hymns will come to my mind, or songs will come to my mind, even psalms at times. And I'm refreshed, I'm enlivened, I'm encouraged in the Lord in that moment. And so we do that together corporately, not only to lift our voices to praise God, but to embed them in our hearts, to embed them in a place that they are being made ready by the Spirit of God to be available to us in our time of need. The other thing that we can be encouraged of to use the Psalms in our time of music is because Christ is in the Psalms. The Psalms are not an Old Testament relic of songs sung or written mostly by King David and other men, but they are Psalms. They are, uh, as some have said, they are the heart of the Old Testament Scripture. For every human emotion and affection is found in those Psalms. And it's interesting to me, and hopefully it is to you, that the Psalms, as Paul here speaking to the Ephesian church, sometime in that first century period of time, and maybe even closer to that first half of the first century, that the Psalms were immediately useful to the church. As we read in Acts chapter 2, they They had a song to sing. They had praising to give to God. They continued in the temple. Psalms were immediately useful to the Christian church. Peter even employed multiple psalms in his sermon. And he saw that Christ was not only spoken of, but Christ was speaking. One of the most quoted Passages in the Old Testament is Psalm 110. Here we find the Son of God speaking to the Father. So we find in the Psalms, not only do we find the Psalms that encourage us corporately together, let's go praise the Lord. Oh, how wonderful it is to enter into the house of God. We find psalms that are from us to God, our hearts crying out. It might be too painful to recollect those for me this morning, but we also find the words prophetically from God to us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Know that I am God. And then we have those mysterious passages like Psalm 110 where the Son of God speaks to God the Father and God the Father speaking to the Son. And that we are uh, encouraged to know that we can go to the Psalms and not just find our Savior spoken of, but we find our Savior speaking. There's a theological word related to that 
because it's found so often. And we must think as we read the Psalms and sing the Psalms that though they express the the desires and cares of our hearts and they often are written in first person and we think of David, let us also think that those that speak of trials and suffering are the words of Christ. They were the guideposts to the humanity of Christ so that he may understand the mission of Christ. His mission and purpose is made clear in the Psalms. So why would we not engage in singing such a wonderful treasury of God's works? Just as a quick example, turn with me to Psalm 105. We won't take the time to read all 45 verses this morning, but this psalm is in regards to God's works remembered. We've been reading in the book of Numbers, and we've been reading the travels of the Israelites. We've read, read of their given allotments and the boundaries of the land, and we have all these things related to the works of God, and here put into song is, are these travels. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. There you have singing and speaking together. Again, Paul, not a novel idea that that we would speak to one another and sing to one another. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Who are the sons of Abraham? The ones who have his faith. Who are the sons of Jacob? They are the true Israelites who have received the true circumcision of the heart. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. We read of all the works of God. And we're encouraged there that this outward expression in song should have an inward reality. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 5. That we are to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We are to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. He that will sing aright must, with the use of his psalm, join sense, that he understands it, with sense, that he expresses it, affection, This commentator says, get the spirit of David to sing a psalm of David with affection, exultation with that gravity. Let our mirth savor of lightness. Get the spirit till we play on this organ. There is no music 
in God's ear. It is said that the ancient Eastern and Western churches used a kind of singing that we, uh, that they cared more to bring the cry of the heart than the concert of the voice. It is said that that type of music was more closer to speaking than it was to singing because they were concerned to bring the cry of the heart more than the concert of the voice. It is also said that on the other side, heretics have refined their song. As the Arians in Chrysostom's time and the Donatists in Augustine's time, the pithy statements and songs of the Arians had to be combated in creedal form and an assuming song form by the Orthodox. Let us not stand so much upon the melody of voice as on the harmony of holy affections. God is spirit and he will be worshipped in spirit. And so at this, I, I say that singing as a result of being filled in the spirit is not as a result of the emotional lift of the music. It's not as a result of, of the repetitive nature of a certain phrase. It's not a result of, of the position of your hands or the open or closed of your eyes or the brightness of the lights. In some ways, though we seek to do it well, it's not a result of the one who leads an instrument in the front. It's a result of the work of the Spirit. It's a testifying to who's at work in our life. And this work of the Spirit is, is the work of very God, the very God. We wonder at the burning bush. We wonder at the fire by day or cloud by day and fire by night. We wonder about the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament temple. And yet, Scripture testifies that those who've received Christ by faith have been indwelled by this God. This is the Spirit which is enlivened in us when we sing. We are to sing with our hearts. We are to sing and it is to be as if our hearts are making melody to the Lord. A few con con concluding thoughts, especially relating to our songs. Our songs must be first sung. That seems too simple. But in the general church, there's a dearth or there's a, a lacking of singing. Some somehow related to the presentation of the song, but somehow in relation to the desire to sing. I've probably heard this more as it relates to men than to women, but blessed is the church where all are heard. And even children, as they are brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, may lift their voices to God. It is a discouragement for me to hear in time past of fathers who choose not to employ song in their family worship because they don't like to sing. 
brothers, I encourage you to employ song in family worship, even if you can't sing. Our songs must be sung. Our songs must be edifying. We are to sing songs that are meant to be heard by each other. If there is Colossians 3 said to teach and admonish one another, we should hear each other's words. This is a time for us to participate corporately, um, vocally and corporately in that way. And so we should be able to hear each other's voice. That is, we are to sing songs that encourage participation. We are to sing songs in a way I think that requires participation. So I hope we never present to you a song that could kind of go on without it being awkward unless we are participating together in it because we are meant to sing songs that edify each other. We are to sing songs that require corporate participation. We are to sing songs also. We, our songs must be sung with honesty of heart. We must pray that our words are not empty. We must pray that they are not clanging symbols because they're not attended by love. We must ask the Spirit to fill us so that the fruit of this filling would come out in voice to our God. That our words would not be dead words, but enlivened by the Spirit of the living God. We must, our songs must be out of the word, both literally and reflectively. Literally, as we've done, we will sing songs out of the word so that we may sing God's words to him. We must sing songs that are reflective of God's word, the truth that is contained in them, that which is considered reflective of God's uh, good word. Our songs are to assist in approving sound doctrine. We sing songs that praise Father, Son, and Spirit. We sing songs related to the Trinity so that by God's grace, as they are implanted in our hearts and in our minds, that as we hear things that do not accord with sound doctrine, maybe the song will help us and guide us into better thinking. Fifthly, and our final consideration, as Paul says here, that we are to sing, making melody with our heart to the Lord. Our songs should be doxological. Our songs are to be sung to the glory of God. Everybody likes a good singer. Everybody's impressed by good vocals. And I'm thankful for the gifts of, to the church in that way. But if you are singing to the glory of God, you are lifting up the instrument given to you to the one who has fashioned it. Maybe we need to seek to improve it as the Lord allows providentially. But use your instrument to the glory of God so that as we come together corporately, as we speak to one another, and certainly as we sing with one another, 
we may give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us voices to sing. We thank you that you have given us songs to sing. You have used the talent of your people to reflect upon your word so that we may sing rich doctrine. Help us, Lord, for we, the flesh is weak. We are often distracted. We are often carried away by concerns and fears of man. May we employ our instruments to your glory alone. We thank you that you have promised to work through these means to nourish us, to feed our faith. We may continually be built up together as a people and a holy temple to you. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.